welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert, Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our third episode of Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Joy Bauer, and as always, I'm so excited to be hosting Dietitian Connections' new accredited webinar series interviewing Power RDs about some of the hottest topics in dietetics. And you could tell from my background, we are in the midst of a crazy storm here. <laughs> I'm streaming in from New York, and hopefully everything will go smooth and my Wi-Fi will stay stable. Dietitian Connection put together this webinar series to highlight different perspectives on topical issues in nutrition to inspire and educate all of us and ultimately help us to become the very best RDs that we can be. Now, before we get started on today's topic, food and mood, can the foods we eat impact mental health? I have a few quick items to discuss. First, I just want to provide you with a snapshot of the topics we'll be covering so you can better organize your questions. Here's how it's going to go. After I introduce our guest speakers, we will discuss the current research on diet and depressive symptoms, and then move on to the role of diet quality and specific foods and potential supplements and how they can impact mental health. We will also touch upon challenges and obstacles to consider when working with patients with mood disorders. While we're chatting in real time, I encourage all of you to add your own questions to the Q&A box. So not the chat box, but the questions should go in the Q&A box, which are at the bottom of your screen. And additionally, you're also going to be able to see questions that other members of the audience have submitted, which is really cool because you could upvote their question and kind of alert us to the fact that you would also like to hear that answered. And that's really great for us on the other end because we could see how many people are interested in a specific question. Um, big apologies also in advance if I'm unable to get to your specific question, because as you probably know from the previous sessions, and I hope that you've attended, and if you can't, you could always go back into the archives and you can watch them, but we get hundreds and hundreds of questions pouring in. So it's virtually impossible to answer all of them, which I know is such a bummer. And again, I apologize. As for tech issues, if you have any during the webinar, and hopefully you won't have any, please message the Dietitian Connection team directly through your chat box, and they're going to be able to assist you. And of course, please don't hesitate to share your experience today on social media too. You can tag at 
Dietitian Connection and me at Joy Bauer on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And finally, yes, there is definitely going to be a recording of this particular webinar right after the session. So you'll get an email from Dietitian Connection with all of the recording information within the next 24 hours or so. And that email will also explain how you can get your continuing education certificate for today's event so that you could submit and get your CE credits. And now on to the show. It is my great pleasure to introduce our amazing guests who were thoughtfully chosen based on their research experience and also working directly with patients. First up is April Hackert. She is a psychiatric culinary medicine research dietitian, scientist, and international clinical eating disorder supervisor, specializing in nutrition neuropsychology. Through Choose to Change Nutrition Services, April showcases the healing power of food for medical and mental health conditions. This includes removing stigma and internal trauma for seeking support for mental health conditions. As a global expert in dietetics and a trained speaker, April finds it a pure joy to communicate complex scientific principles into creative and relatable concepts for all audiences. Her research examines dietary components and subjective behavioral food patterns of humans with symptoms of anxiety. Hi, April. <laughs> hey, Joy. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for being here. And picking me to come and share my knowledge and wisdom with you and the audience. I can't wait to have this conversation with you and Meg. Well, let me just say you were an easy choice. And oh. I, I have really had such a great time catching up with you before this and getting to know you. You're, you're such a superstar and you are oh. a wealth of information and I'm excited for everybody to hear you speak. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm so glad because you and I have a connection from like a few decades ago when I lived in New York. And so it's just, it's such a joy to kind of be able to have more intimate conversation. And I've also been a pleasure to meet you too. Oh, absolutely. And tell everybody where you're streaming in from. Yeah. So everyone, I am in the Davis, California area, kind of Northern California. It's beautiful over here. Fall is starting. And for any of the audience who likes to drink wine, we are just getting ready to start our crush over here in the, <laughs> in the Napa Valley. So um, it's beautiful. Come on over and we can eat some food together. Awesome. What a promotion. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It was just where I'm at. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like a promotion for a beautiful area. I meant oh, like. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. No. Now, now we're going to the other side of the world. And yes. it is my great honor and privilege to introduce Megan Hockey. She is an accredited practicing dietitian and PhD candidate with the Food and Mood Center. She has expertise in working with people with common and complex mental disorders and is passionate about supporting people to make healthier lifestyle choices to improve their mental health. Her research interests include the role of diet in mental health with the focus of her PhD on the association between dairy intake and depression. Depression. Megan has worked across several diet interventions for depression, has authored more than 10 publications in the field of nutritional psychiatry, and has received multiple awards for her research at national and international conferences. She also regularly presents on the role of diet in mental health at schools and community events. 
Welcome, Megan, from Australia. Yes, from Australia in the middle of the night. So hopefully I make sense when I'm speaking now, but thank you. It's really, um, it's a pleasure to be here with you both today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And I also have to extend a huge congratulations. Megan is having her first baby. How many months pregnant are you right now? Um, I'm 31 weeks this week. So getting to the pointy end now. So that hampered with her PhD at the moment has been a lot of fun, but yeah very much practicing what I preach in terms of food and mood <laughs> to get through the final hurdle at the moment. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. And I feel like we got you in the nick of time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So I guess like we're going to get the party started and I'm going to just jump in with questions and I'm going to actually start. My first question is going to be for April. And my question is, can you start us off by just sort of explaining about nutritional psychiatry and how you got started working in the field? Yeah, it's such a great question. And, and as we go through here, we'll, we'll take a look and understand how we're all practicing in it in some way. But I personally got started in the field of nutritional psychiatry in the fitness industry in the kind of late 90s. At the time, we were coming off of a big no fat, high sugar body image craze. And everyone was trying to learn about nutrition and macronutrients. And I was saturated with depression and eating disorders and dieting. And I had no idea what to do with that as a fitness professional. So I actually pursued nutrition and got training and became a dietitian. And nutritional psychiatry sort of just found me in that I wanted to help people who didn't have a voice and the field in and of itself is an integration of how we use our food and our biochemistry training and our medicine training, not only with the human experience. So nutritional psychiatry is a very general field that can include anxiety and depression and all sorts of trauma. So the big thing for me of why I love it is that it's so complex and there's not a lot of us wanting to, to sort of go to those dark places. But what's wonderful about it is they're not dark. They're just beautiful and complex and filled with a language that we haven't really understood yet. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And I'm glad the field found you. Oh. <laughs> You're certainly doing important stuff. And so now, Megan, um, I know that you work for the Food and Mood Center at Deakin University in Australia, and it's one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, I would love for you to tell our audience a little bit more about the work that you're doing in nutritional psychiatry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came to work at the Food and Mood Center around about four years ago now where I jumped across from the clinical space and into research and started my PhD. Um, and I've had a real bit of a journey in the face of COVID and then also just spiraling and changing my project as I've gone along. But um, I've had the opportunity to work I was part of dietary interventions for depression and running clinical trials, but also doing a little bit more of that observational FE-based research. So looking at the role that diet may play in the prevention of depression at the same time. Um, and at the moment, I'm in the final stages of completing my PhD, as we discussed, which looks at more broadly the role of dairy intake in depression, but also includes elements of other things like the role of diet. Um, 
and how that intersects with mental health too. And then um, I suppose because I like to wear multiple hats at the one time and I can never say no to anything. I am also working as a research dietitian at the moment at the Food and Mood Centre um, on a really exciting upcoming trial that looks at an online lifestyle intervention delivered through a telehealth platform for um, adults with COVID-related distress. So we're looking there at the role of diet and physical activity and how that may um, play a role in um, psychological distress and be of use, um, particularly during this um time for everyone at the moment but I should touch on as well so the Food and Mood Centre for those who may not have um, been introduced to it before or familiar with um, us we are a world leading research centre so really the first of its kind to focus on looking specifically at the role of how what we eat impacts on our mood and mental health as well so that's set up um, in a small town that many might not know in Geelong Australia so just outside of Melbourne. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, um, yeah, it's uh, so grateful that I get to share space and hear about Meg's work again, because I remember being there and I'm, it's just, it was so wonderful joy that you picked both of us to be here. So I just, I wanted to chime in and say Geelong is amazing. So it's really great. And how many years has, has the food and mood, you know, university been a thing, an organization? Yeah, so it's still relevantly, sorry, um, recent. So when I first started back in 2017, we were just a small group, but really over the past few years, um, it's expanded, I think, uh, coinciding with a growing interest in the role of diet in mental health. Um, but now there's, oh, I couldn't even put a number um, on how many people there, I'd say upwards of 20 at the moment that are involved with the Food and Mood Centre. And then we have collaborators from far, far away, um, great um, guests that come and visit us like April. So, yeah, we're quite a wide network now. Wow. And so, like, the, the um, when, when you conduct all of these studies, is it based on volunteers or do you also have um, maybe, like, psychi- psychiatric centers that you collaborate with? How does that work? Yeah, so a lot of research, I suppose, is relying on the goodwill of our amazing volunteer and participants and, and donating their time. Um, but we are also more increasingly involved um, with psychiatric centres and using them as a referral pathway as well, which really is providing, that, I suppose, that um, research to bedside type of practice as well and helping to provide types of care that um, to those who may need it most as well, which is a really exciting um, jump in research at the moment. Well, that's fantastic. You guys are really doing important work, both of you. Again, thank you so much for being here. And I love the fact that you know each other and that you've collaborated before, which is really cool. Um, so April, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head over to you now with this question. And um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the unique barriers or challenges to healthy eating among those with specific mood disorders. And, you know, for people that are watching, a lot of RDs are in practice and they're counseling patients with anxiety, with depression, um, and with other debilitating and sometimes high functioning mood disorders. So it'd be great to hear from you, like, what should we be on the lookout for? What are some of the barriers and how do you handle them? Absolutely. It's such a great question. I'm glad we're starting in with that because that's what we really need to talk about, right? Like, I mean, we can talk about how great we are, which is wonderful, but let's talk about how to help everyone else. 
Joy, the first barrier that we have to deal with is, is making this an acceptable conversation is, are you struggling with depression? Has your mood changed over the past six months that you've noted? It's very similar to the same way that we would talk to someone about a change in their shape or their body weight, but without triggering them for body image issues. And so I think the first thing that we have to do is look within ourselves and, and ask ourselves, do we have those questions in our mind? You know, the do we have the language, the key phrases that make us comfortable to say those words? And then also being able to have support and supervision that if you find yourself asking these questions, you have to think about how you would answer those questions. And that's where the honesty comes in as a clinician. So that foundational barrier is really critical to get over. But then from the practical standpoint with our clients and our patients is really recognizing when someone is depressed, what does depression look like? Depression can be sleeping in our stereotypical concepts, but depression can also be isolation. Depression can be workaholism. Depression can be someone who has shifted their reality from what they normally do. And that's why it actually is much more critical to learn how to ask the question, have, has your mood changed? Are you feeling any different about your enthusiasm for life? Have you noticed any changes in how your hair or your skin looks as opposed to how it was six months ago? Our bodies will give us a lot of clues. We just have to ask the question. And then the other piece and just kind of listing more barriers, I can tell you as many as you want, but the main ones that I would say is really understanding that Depression is a physiological condition. Anxiety is a physiological condition. And that we need to get the body the nutrition that it's missing. Not that we need to find a new diet. We need to get the body the fuel that it needs. So does the body need energy? Does the body need fruits and vegetables, aka antioxidants, right? You know, so we as scientists and clinicians we've got to do our due diligence and really take a look at the human and learn their language. But more importantly, think about what does the body need and, and how can we help this human be able to get it in their mouth and enjoy it and have peace with it. Mm -hmm. Did, so before, um, goodness guys, I'm so sorry. Um, it's live. <laughs> <laughs> well, my Wi-Fi is still working, so that's yes. <laughs> So um, before we get into the actual food piece of it, do you feel like, especially bouncing, well, a lot of people are still right in the midst of a pandemic, um, do you feel like eating behaviors, let's separate out the actual food piece sure. first, but like eating behaviors for the better and for the worse can impact mood? 100%. Uh, this is so this is something that I have looked at um, both in my own research as well as in the literature. We know from sociocultural and humanitarian literature that humans are community-based creatures, right? We need to be in community. Stress hormones, cortisol levels, all those inflammatory markers rise when we're placed in isolation. So 
the current pandemic that we're all working through and, and being able to find a new groove in our lives, we need to take a look at how our own personal lives have changed. So if you're someone who's used to being alone and then now you're trapped in a box with a lot of people, that can be stressful for you and vice versa. So I think it's it's a really critical question to explore for yourself. But I will tell you the science and the research and the randomized clinical control trials getting the evidence for me to say 100% is not there. But that's why we're here is to explore questions and to get more people interested because that relationship is very critical. And the last comment I'll made is when COVID came down in our world and it impacted me personally, I was doing work in um, long-term care facilities and I saw elderly individuals who stopped having meals with their families. And within one month, they're losing weight, they're depressed, and they had no contact. They just lost their want to eat. And nothing else changed other than that they didn't get to see their loved ones. So I'm so glad you asked the question. And it is the really, really powerful emotional space that we as dietitians can sit in with our patients. So do you feel like, again, this is, and this is for both of you, um, like I would imagine that nutritional psychiatry um, really uh, increased tenfold during the need for it during the pandemic, because like, I just know from professional and personal experiences that, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists from, you know, small children all the way up through seniors, you, you can't even get an appointment. I mean, they are like, you know, scrambling to come up for air because they're so busy um, as are, you know, psychiatric wards and hospitals, et cetera, clinics. So I would imagine that just from the standpoint of nutrition counseling, there are so many more people coming in with anxiety, with depression um, that has exacerbated during the pandemic. So from the behavioral food standpoint, it would seem like it's really important important to figure out a way that people can have some sort of camaraderie during eating, whether it be Zoom or what. And these are things also, by the way, that like without the pandemic, elderly people, people who are housebound, people who have jobs that they just work out of their homes so they don't get the social interaction. Is there any kind of tricks or strategies that you use with clients or within your studies to help people feel more socially connected when they're eating? Sure. I mean, in, in finishing my piece, and I, I'd love to know, Meg, what you guys have done on the other side with the clinical trials, because I know from being with your group, you guys are so comprehensive into that psychosocial component of psychiatry. But to your comment, Joy, one of the things that I used to use in the clinical eating disorder world, which is very common, is you do community meals together. You know, we can do that on Zoom, right? Like, hey, everyone, we're getting together for two o'clock snack or, you know, having dinner together. We do it socially just for fun, but we don't often think about using our technology for the routine aspects of life, right? Like we need to eat every day. <laughs> and you have an opportunity to, to have joy and pleasure, not only from the food you eat, right, nutritionally, but you also have this beautiful opportunity to have a social, joyful experience three times, four times, five times a day, you know? So it's, it's just, it's fun to be able to help people see that piece is available. 
And Megan, do you also institute some sort of like social connection or um, eating behavioral homework with people? Yeah, I would say an element of it. I mean, the Mediterranean diet, which we know has the best available evidence at the moment for um, depression, a key component of that is the style of eating and eating with others and making it a real communal style of dining. So I think a foundational element of the Mediterranean diet is that social aspect as well, which we're all, um, I'm sure, yearning a little bit at the moment. But I think April really touched on a nice point in leveraging on technology when we can get in on the um, Zoom Zoom meals or um, online meals with our family and friends to help get that connection back a little bit. Great. So important. It's so important on so many levels. So Megan, I'm going to stick with you and we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about the gut now, um, which is on the forefront of everything I feel like. And I know there's a lot of talk about um, the gut brain connection. So what have you found in your research regarding the role of the gut, whether we're calling it the microbiome or the microbiota, is that right? Biota in depression and anxiety. And also, can you just differentiate what is actually the difference between the microbiota and the microbiome? Yes, absolutely. So what we're beginning to understand is that there's this bi-directional communication between our gut and our brain, it's often termed as the gut-brain axis. So often I like to think of it as a highway, this communication constant, um, communication signals that operate between our gut and our brain, and that can occur directly through this long nerve um, known as the vagus nerve. But um, communication can also occur indirectly, so through immune molecules, through metabolic and also um, humoral pathways as well. So it's not necessarily always direct and what's interesting is that the gut microbiome or microbiota can actually influence um, levels of inflammation um, and the production of things like brain chemicals or neurotransmitters which are like chemical messengers between our gut and our brain so we're beginning to understand a lot more about the role of the gut microbiota in terms of depression um, and we think that the key element of this is because it's in this constant communication between our brain as well. So as an example of this, there's been some animal studies that have done that they've taken the gut microbiota from a mouse that has been depressed and planted it in um, a, an animal model or a mouse that has been non-depressed and it, that the mouse has actually displayed symptoms of depression. So we see from this that this um, seems to be a key role of the gut microbiota in depression, but studies at the moment in humans we're not quite at that point um it's not exactly clear how um, the gut microbiota may play a role in depression but we do think it's um a key pathway um and for dietitians this is quite exciting because we know that we can change our gut microbiota through what we eat and that these changes can actually occur, occur quite rapidly as well so um leveraging on that in terms of when we're communicating with patients um, and using the gut microbiota as, I suppose, a tool to help um, engage and excite people to um, eat more healthily as a way to improve their mental health um, is a really exciting direction at the moment. Wow, the study with mice is quite compelling. That, that yes, is yeah. pretty unbelievable. So you're saying that if you take the gut microbiota from healthy mice and you implant it into mice that are depressed, they will have a happy mental outlook? 
So I think it went the other way in that they took the microbiota of the depressed mouse and planted it in the, um, the animal or the mouse that was not depressed. And so they displayed symptoms of depression. Um, but it's similar to the concept of fecal microbiota transplants, I suppose, that are occurring for um, health conditions like IBD um, and that at the moment. So whether, yeah, it's an exciting area to look at for the future for depression as well. Okay, so the million-dollar question here is, how do we create a healthy microbiome? Like, what when it comes to counseling clients, like, what are the the you know few things that would make the biggest difference? And of course, I want to ask you about probiotics as well. Yeah, sure. So at the moment, I suppose the difficulty is we're not actually sure what a healthy microbiome looks like. And we know that a diverse microbiome with lots of different types of bacteria um, is is probably the most protective for health conditions. But with the clinical tests we have available available at the moment, like the microbiome stool sampling, we're not yet at a point where we can interpret that and um, say what a healthy microbiome looks like in terms of depression. But getting back to your point about what to eat, we do know that to create a diverse microbiome, we need a diverse diet that's predominantly based up, made up of plant foods. So talking things like vegetables, fruits, whole grains, leggings, lots of um, lots of fiber, which we know lots of prebiotic fibers, and also polyphenols, your antioxidants like your um, found in your fruits and vegetables, they can act as prebiotics as well in the gut and stimulate the growth of the good bacteria too. So in, in short, a, a predominantly a plant-based diet with lots of fiber and very um, diverse types of fibers as well. Okay. And so do you have, um, do you get into probiotics or is there any type that you would recommend or amount? This, yeah. So at this point in time, um, I mean, April can weigh in here as well. I'd say the evidence isn't very conclusive regarding probiotics for depression. There's certainly some studies that suggest that they um, may be a benefit, but across all the research, the strains used are really variable, the dose is quite inconsistent, and the duration for um, how long these probiotics are used for really vary. So we're not yet at a point where we can say, this is a probiotic you should be taking for depression for this long and, and how much to be taking. So Often um, I always tend to use a food-first approach. So going back to food sources of probiotics, like your um, your sauerkraut, your kefir, your yogurt and kimchi, because these also have the added benefits of containing prebiotics, which will help stimulate the growth of the probiotics or the life cultures within those foods as well. Pre prebiotics has oh, become oh. It's a hot topic right now for sure. Absolutely. Go ahead, April. I'm sorry. Sorry, Joy. No, I just, I wanted to, to chime in as far as we don't know the science because as Meg was saying, we can't profile what a quote healthy biota looks like. But what I wanted to offer from the clinical perspective, and this is how I have found this to be successful in, in helping the, the person who's seeking support from the dietitian to find their own you know, new steady state of mood is using a dietary recall that we would often do as dietitians, but taking a look at the categories of what's missing. What have they not been eating? Are they not eating fruits and vegetables and only do juicing? Are they not eating, you know, and, and looking at that, 
what it does is it allows you to kind of look at the same equation through a different perspective. Because if the body does not have any fiber, well, then we know we need to start there. But if the body doesn't have any monounsaturated fatty acids, because this person doesn't eat any fats or seeds, then we know that we're dealing more of a fatty acid issue. And so that's how I use my clinical training that, you know, we all have and, and, and help use the specialty of mood and brain to help the patient really understand that the diversity of the diet is, is their treatment for their mental health issues. That's great. Very well put. Um, oh. So so, so when, when you're counseling somebody or you're doing research, are there specific, specific serum blood levels that we should be getting to sort of look at the whole picture? Because I know like vitamin D is connected, low vitamin D is connected with seasonal affect disorder. Um, I think folic at low folic acid can be connected. So what are all of the labs that we should be requesting and assessing. Meg, do you want to go ahead since you're yeah. in the, the need for your trial? Go ahead and then I can chime in that I would do clinically. That I think yeah, absolutely. I suppose I can lend to my clinical practice. This probably applies more rather than the research um, per se, but generally I would um, screen for any nutrient deficiencies because like you said, Joy, we know there's a link between the vitamin D deficiency and depression um, so looking for um, elements, so minerals like zinc, but also looking at vitamin B12 and iron um, as well as part of that screening tool um, and correcting for any of these nutrition, nutri nutrient deficiencies if there's any underlying deficiencies because we do know that there's leak between um, specifically low intakes of vitamin D, iron and zinc and also magnesium um, and B12 and depression. So I think it's a really important part of our practice, how often routinely it's done. Um, broadly by dietitians, I suppose April, you may be able to weigh in as well. But I think moving forward, particularly as we get into that uh, more personalised nutrition approach, I think looking at biochemistry and bloods is a, a big space to be working in as well. And it's good to know because like a lot of times um, the referrals don't come in from psychiatrists, right? They'll come in from internists or somebody refers a friend. Um, and, and so for us to be in the know as to what type of bloods to request when we send them back or collaborate with their physicians, thanks for that. Super important. Um, so we have a question that I'm going to bounce off of. I'm, I'm going to add a little bit. Yep. I'm so sorry not to interrupt and move forward, but I wanted to give you a laundry list of labs if I could. It's like just a list for your listeners and viewers to kind of have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Because I, I wanted you guys to know when you made the comment about having referrals from internists. And so a lot of the labs that you'll get medically, you can use psychiatrically. So I wrote a little list here. So first and foremost, an A1C, because you want to find out about blood sugar stability. Blood sugar instability will lead often clinically to mental health manifestations, low mm -hmm. blood sugar, high blood sugar, really critical. Um, a hepatic panel, an ALK-FOS, an ALT, and an AST will let you know if the liver and the heart are starting to show inflammatory signs, which is going to then tell you you're pretty far down in the malnutrition part of the mental health condition. And then the big one that I have found clinically that has helped a lot of patients is assessing in the B12 world is we want to test 
MMA, which is methylmalonic acid, as the lab value, not B12. And the reason why is that if there's a genetic mutation or another issue, autoimmune, the B12 level will not be correct if you assess B12. But if you assess MMA, you actually get an appropriate reading of the B12. It's just an upstream precursor. So it's really interesting research, but I wanted your, I wanted your <laughs> viewers to know this. Wait, so this is great. So what I'm going to let everybody know that's watching, we're going to follow up. We're, we're going to be sending citations from research that we're talking about. We're also, if it's okay with you guys, we're also going to be sending what labs we just talked about. So, you know, if anybody didn't write them down or you didn't memorize them, no worries. Um, we're going to follow up with that information. Um, awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sorry. <laughs> we have we have a question from Hillary who believes we are what we eat and we feel what we eat. And I think we're all in that camp for sure. And so when we were talking about fruits and vegetables, her question was what else other than fruits and vegetables um, and, and antioxidants can help? And so before I move on, because I, I what I specifically want to ask about is omega-3 fats. But before I get into that, because I don't want to brush the fruits and vegetables under the table because they're so important and it's such a tremendous category for so many reasons, the vitamins, the minerals, you spoke about folate before, which is super important, as well as the fiber stabilizing blood sugar levels, helping our gut bacteria, um, all of the antioxidants. When you counsel clients or when you're vetting through the research, is there a certain amount? I understand like the more, the better, but from a counseling and strategic point of view, is there an amount we should be aiming for? Or is it as simple as include vegetables with each of your meals and two to three servings of fruit each day? How can we work that so it really resonates? I can jump in oh. here and comment in terms yeah. of um, the amount. I suppose where I default to a lot of the time is back to that Mediterranean diet because we know that's where the best evidence stands in terms of mental health at the moment. And as part of that, recommendations are to include um Around, around five serves of vegetables a day. I mean, I'm not okay with the American dietary guidelines at the moment, but around including an abundance of vegetables, around five serves of vegetables a day, two serves of fruit. But within that as well, I think rather than focusing on portion sizes, a lot of the time with my clients, I focus back to that message of our diversity as well, getting a different range of colours of fruits and vegetables to get those different polyphenols because we know that the different coloured fruits and vegetables each have those different coloured antioxidants or those different antioxidants within them. So encouraging that message of diversity and within that also encouraging herbs and spices because they're a fabulous source of polyphenols as well to boost antioxidant intake at the same time as well. Um, so I guess in the messaging, a lot of clients that I see will, will go from a really baseline of having minimal. So even small changes, those small changes of going from having no vegetables to even one serve a day and having those gradual steps um, rather than overwhelming clients with saying you need to have five serves of vegetables a day, being really flexible in the approach and working alongside them to support them in gradually reaching a target of where they may be able to um, have more fruits and vegetables in their diet. Great. And one of the one of the techniques that I'll I'll use in the same approach is is following the Mediterranean pattern, as you 
you need the fresh and the fish and two to three times a week, no matter even if you're a pregnant woman, because we need the omega-3s, like we need those omega-3s. But what's really critical is the timing of eating. I have found in clinical practice and even in my own research is that once again, we're looking at the body needing to process fuel and the microbiome and biotas specifically using that fuel and clinically find out the pattern of your clients eating. Do they eat once a day, twice a day, four times a day, see what's missing. And then as we would do in our common motivational interviewing and clinical practice, asking them where they want to start. And then, you know, going through the barriers and, and figuring out how we can support them. But it, it really is hard because you don't know where you're starting. And that's why nutritional psychiatry is amazing. It's because every person is a whole new case study and you've got to use everything that you know how to, how to help that person. It's really rewarding because, you know, when you're able to enhance somebody's mood, you are literally elevating every single aspect of their life. Yeah. Um, Our role so- as a dietitian is amazing in this field. And it's just, it's such a pleasure to be able to have this conversation with this depth. And it's just... I, I so want everyone to understand how awesome you are. <laughs> mm. Well, you, you, um, I mentioned it first and then you bought it up again. So let's talk about omega-3 fats because I know even now psychiatrists are embracing the use of omega-3 supplements in their treatment together with, or sometimes in, instead of, uh, starting with medicate, starting with omega-3 supplements instead of medications. So, you know, how do you utilize omega-3 fats? Like what is the research stay, say, where are we at? How much, where should we be getting it from? I'm going to throw that out to both of you guys okay. and you I'll start out real clinically out of the out of the gate. I'll find out whether or not someone is consuming fish um, from the behavioral standpoint because we need to take a look at that. Are there limitations? Are there preferences? Are there traumas related to it? And exploring that, and then find out their belief systems about seafood. But at the end of the game, we really need to make sure that the brain has these essential fatty acids that we cannot make on our own. We've got to get them in, and they have direct correlatively evidence-based research showing that they do impact mood. So I recommend two grams um, of DHA and EPA right out of the gate for someone, whether or not they're getting that through food or whether or not they're getting that through supplements. I clinically recommend you take it at night, just so if you have an upset stomach, you don't get fish burps. Mm -hmm. But um, that's my recommendation. I don't have a brand because I like to be sensitive to people's financial status. And so what I like to do is I like to teach them how to read a label and to know how many capsules they need to consume to get that dose. And then if their financial status changes or they have one where they can get a more purified version, then they'll be able to know that they don't need to take six of this brand. They only need to take one. So, and this is where Joy, your comment to the physician is that you can get a prescription for omega-3 fatty acids. And that's a really critical empowerment tool that we as dietitians can help our clients ask their primary care providers for. I'll just lay in there as well, in terms of all nutrient supplements at the moment for depression, probably the strongest evidence base is coming out, like you said, Joy, around omega-3s. And particularly those that have a high EPA to DHA ratio as well. So around that 2,000 milligram or 2 gram mark, seems to be where effective doses 
are. Um, but again, April raised a great point about the source as well. We, fish oils can be really highly variable um, in terms of their quality, so making sure you pick a really high quality fish oil and also taking into context as well, though, the socioeconomic circumstance of someone, their, their food security, because we know that um, those who have depression often have poor food security as well. So um, supplementation at all times might not be appropriate for um, many people in this cohort. So considering as well where they may be able to get more affordable sources of omega-3, so tin fish, even for example, um, tin sardines is maybe an option for someone that's going to provide them sustenance and nutrition um, while also keeping them full, yeah. Right. And and that's a really good point because even walnuts, which clearly is ALA, so, you know, it's not part of the studies with EPA and DHA is affordable. And it also brings um, some fiber and some fat and a little bit of protein to stabilize the blood sugars that we were talking about before. So like, I think we're all in that camp of food first, but some of these things are very difficult to get the exorbitant amounts that we find with research in connection with uh, mood disorders. Um, so thank you for that. We have a lot of questions. I'm actually gonna jump into some of the questions quickly. Um, and so th there's a lot of people that are upvoting this one, uh, many, many people. So I'm gonna actually read it directly. <laughs> yeah. Where is that line between a dietetic recommendation and a psychological recommendation when approaching patients with eating disorders? And we all knew like, so eating disorders is like a slippery slope here. And sometimes it is a mood disorder. Sometimes it comes without a mood disorder. But again, like, what are your thoughts on that question? And if you want me to read it again, I'll read it again. It's such a great question. But um, I don't know, Meg, do you have thoughts from your clinical work? Yeah, I, I would say I, I tend to use a weight neutral approach or take the discussion entirely off weight. Um, we know from the SMILES trial, which was one of the the key dietary intervention study, the first study to come out to show that the effect of a Mediterranean diet can improve depressive symptoms, that these benefits were independent of weight loss, meaning you don't need to, um, to achieve weight loss to see benefits to your mental health. So having discussions with um, clients around um, food for mental health doesn't have to be weight-centric a lot of the time. Um, April, did you have anything further to add to that? other than an amen and a hallelujah and a raise yeah. the roof that is about how we should not be talking about weight. Um, I think that it's a parameter that we can take a look at, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I think, Joy, to your question of where's the line with eating disorders and psychiatry and nutrition, this is the line I've held for 20 some years. And as an international eating disorder supervisor, this is the line I try to hold with, with clients who will, and patients is it is okay for me to have a conversation to identify an issue or a topic that's impacting your food. Anything. We can talk about anything. However, my job as a dietitian is to quickly note that that is a trauma, that is an unresolved issue, and get that immediately over to a therapist. I, as a dietitian, never resolve a trauma, but I have no problem sitting in a space talking with a client about their PTSD symptoms when they go in and smell French fries. No problem at all because we have to work around why they're going into 
have French fries. One, they're mad at themselves for having French fries. They don't want it. And I'm not hating on French fries. I love French fries. But that's their story, right? So that's my answer to your question. And it's such a powerful and deep question. But it well, is. And, and you could, there's so many people that upvoted it. And, and also, yeah. I think that, and I would hope that most of the time, um, when you're counseling somebody with an eating disorder, you're working in conjunction yes. with an eating disorder therapist. So I think these are things as the dietitian, we can ask the psychiatrist or the psychologist, you know, when these things come up, what is appropriate? for me to jump in with, because to your point too, I mean, we're a little bit of a food shrink because it's so psychologically based. It's not just about the science. Um, It's about really like getting into a person's head and trying to understand where they're coming from, their fears, um, you know, their capabilities. And it, it, there, there, it's a slippery slope for sure. But I think that, you know, we, we should be asking and collaborating with the physician who's taking care of the psychological piece um, and helping us to define really what is appropriate. Absolutely. And the last comment, just because it's so critical, this is the reason why in this specialty, we as dietitians have to have supervision. I have to have accountability that when I'm having a conversation with a patient about their food as it relates to a trauma, that my own personal stories of my own mental health and my own life isn't getting impacted because just like our microbiota that can impact our mood, our stories of our clients impact us as clinicians. Amen. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. So this is from Claire. Can Megan expand on her research with dairy? and intake with the diet. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone's interested in dairy. Everyone, oh, dairy is such a huge part of our diet. So the the role that it plays in depression is quite interesting. Um, at the moment, we, um, so as part of my research, I looked at a systematic review. So we looked at how different types of dairy products um, impacted or were associated with depression. We don't have any intervention studies yet. So we're not clear on how they impact depression but there appears to be a link um in particular fermented dairy products may be associated with a reduced risk of depression um and that aligns with research that we've seen coming out that fermented dairy products are beneficial for a whole range of conditions like gastrointestinal health and cardiovascular disease risk um and there's also some interesting research that we've looked at that suggests that high fat dairy intake um in smaller amounts may actually be beneficial to depression as well so this really aligns with where the research is coming out that suggests that in fact low fat and whole fat dairy products both do not adversely um, influence cardiovascular disease risk markers and although our dietary guidelines at the moment recommend low fat dairy products there is this whole body of evidence coming out which suggests mainly because of the effects of the whole dairy matrix that these whole fat dairy products um, do not actually have the risk on cardiovascular disease that we previously thought back um, in the 70s due to saturated fats. So in short, we, we're still a long way off with the evidence. I um, I think moderate amounts of dairy intake as part of a healthy quality diet for depression is important because of the protein content and the calcium, um, but recommending potentially unsweetened fermented sources may be a good approach to start with for now. 
Great. Thank you for that. So we have loads of questions coming in on dietary supplements, loads and loads specifically for mood disorders. So let me let me backtrack for a minute and remind everybody that um, we know lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and plant-based foods. We know that omega-3 fats are super, super important. If you can get them from the fatty fish and maybe the plant-based sources like um, chia seeds and walnuts, um, fantastic. But you would consider a two-gram supplement in addition, or if you can't do that, or if you have the means to do that. Let's move on to talk about vitamin D for a minute, because I know there's a connection to low levels of vitamin D and other than, you know, salmon um, and maybe eggs and fortified milk, it's a really hard one to get enough of. So what are the levels that we're aiming for on a daily basis? And is this something that people should consider taking a supplement for? I think it would depend um, particularly on where people are based. I mean, sunlight is our greatest source of vitamin D around the world. So ensuring that people are getting adequate sunlight and that their actual serum levels of vitamin D within range first um, is most appropriate. And then leading on to that, um, April, did you have anything else further to add? Sorry, I've, I've got my 2am brain kicking in, I think, at the moment. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. In, in being uh, rifling out your questions here, Joy, the key with vitamin D is we have to remember that it's a lipid-soluble vitamin, right? Yes. That you enough fats on board. So I like to have people add seeds, add nuts, add oil. You know, who doesn't want to rip a piece of a focaccia and like dunk it in olive oil? I do. So, you know, like there's a lot that you can do. Um, but I think the other thing as far as levels is each person is going to have their own subjective measure. I know my level to where my mood higher than the lower limit of, you know, kind of within range to where that I need to be above where I need to be. So I think every person is going to need to check that out. But I would say somewhere in the 30s and 40s is feeling lower in their energy and and then you can let that be a guide but if you're in the 20s as a as a reading on the labs you absolutely need supplementation to get okay thank you for that so i think the takeaway here is um make sure that you know your patient or your client's levels and then you could adjust from that and the good news is is that if you're working with a client i would imagine this is an audience that really really wants to feel better so if you're able to point to something that can be approved upon they're going to be highly motivated to either take a supplement or to get out in the sun a little bit um or to eat more things that could help to bump up those numbers um so Let's talk a little bit about folate. Um, how important is it to get enough folate? And do you think that people should be taking a multivitamin just sort of as backup to ensure that they are getting enough? I'll, I'll send that over to you, Megan. Yeah, um, I think folate is essential. And if you think about the food sources that where it comes from, your green leafy vegetables, your range of vegetables and whole grains, these foods provide a whole um, gamut of other nutrients that we know are good for mental health as well in terms of fibre, uh, antioxidants and so forth. So again, I tend to lend back to that food first approach. And to that, what was your second part of the question, Joy, there? Do you remember? 
Nine so do you think like a multivitamin just as backup idea because we know that they're going to be fortified at least with 100% of folic acid. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting. So there's a study that came out as an example recently that actually showed that more is not necessarily better. So when compared to a placebo, um, a multi-nutrient supplement over time did not substantially reduce the risk of depression. So there was no real difference between um, these two, the placebo and the multi-nutrient supplement. So I think where we need to head with this research is understanding what or who will benefit most from these supplements. Um, and rather than a multinutrient, a broad spectrum multinutrient supplement, I would focus on setting the foundations of the diet right as well as a starting point. And then layer in those folate rich foods, like I said, your leafy green vegetables and your whole grains. Um, but April may take a different approach. So I'd be interested to hear there. No. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. I, I always take the approach with food multivitamin. I recommend that if you are I don't know if you could wiggle around. You're freezing up a little bit. So we're only getting some of what you're saying, but I know that you wholeheartedly agree with everything yeah. that Megan <laughs> So that's awesome. Um, so we have, we just have a couple more minutes and we have so many questions. So I'm actually going to jump in. Um, this is a question from Kathy and she asks, what is your opinion on processed foods and sugar consumption specifically when it correlates with mood disorders? Yeah. Um, I can weigh in there. I suppose there's a difference between processed foods and ultra processed foods. Processed foods can actually be quite beneficial for us. When you think about canned tuna, that's a form of processed food. I think where the line comes in is that those ultra-processed foods, those really refined foods that are beyond um, the form of food that they originally came in, that's where we're beginning to see research come out which shows that high intakes of these foods can be quite detrimental um, to mental health. And that is for a number of reasons. It could be because of the trans fat intake, um, but also the additives in these foods like emulsifiers, which um, there's some evidence that suggests that these may have a negative impact on the gut microbiota as well. But in my approach with um, clients, what I find is that by naturally talking about adding more things into the diet and focusing on dietary, vi dietary variety, that this displaces those ultra-processed foods from the diet. So focusing more about what you can add in, how you can get more into your diet, rather than having a negative lens and saying to reduce these foods, I find that by naturally doing that, it displaces these ultra-processed foods from the diet, which is at the end of the day, is a win-win. <laughs> You're getting the added benefits of the extra nutrients while reducing those things that may not be so good for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got to crowd out the bad by showering in the good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sure. And so... Joy, um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can. You're back. Yay. I'm so sorry for everyone. Super quick. And thank you, Magno. I agree with everything you said about folate. And what I just wanted to add with the ultra-processed piece as well is that you want to check in about the methylated multivitamin if someone is taking a multivitamin because there are gene mutations, particularly the MTHFR gene that a quarter of our population has that will impair methylation. And it's a whole nother conversation, but with the food, it's always food first. And I personally, with the ultra processed foods, I think that the gums, and I have done some research 
research in the animal world to where that the gums and a lot of the additives that we're putting into plant-based food items instead of just eating plants, it's not good for our intestinal tract. And it's something we need to take a look at in the science because there's a lot of literature there. So thank you. I'm glad my Wi-Fi came back in. <laughs> Oh, so are we. <laughs> no, thank you so much for that. I'm going to I'm going to read one more question and then I I can't even believe how quickly this hour goes all the time. Um but then we're going to have to wrap. But this question is a really important one. So this one is from Kathy. Can we talk about how to counsel someone to make dietary changes when they may be struggling day-to-day to grocery shop? Um mm. prepare food, etc. So somebody who is really struggling, like what are some tools? I'll start out with that one. Um, the culinary medicine and the the grocery shopping part of mental health is the hardest component because it involves motivation. It involves acknowledgement of what you know and don't know about cooking, and then also any judgment that you have about that process and money. You know, so there's a lot of stressors that go into it. As a very general recommendation to get all of you started, what I try to do is I'll find out when my patient has energy, like is it in the morning, is it in the evening, is it at two in the morning, and and try to find a place or a grocery store or a farmer's market that builds in community. And then that way you set it as an appointment. Um, I, as a dietitian doing private practice, I've actually gone grocery shopping with clients. And that's our, that's our session, which is you bring your list, you bring all the coupons and the things you want to do and let's go through it. I'm your support. Let's talk about what we're going to cook, bring your index cards. So you guys know all of that good stuff, but absolutely really, really critical in, in this part of mental health. Great. Well, my gosh, I, I feel like I'm just going to summarize what I've heard and I'm going to have you guys jump in with any final parting words. So first I think it's really, really important, you said, to make sure that there's socialization of eating, you know, one or more times a day, especially, you know, bouncing back or in the midst of this pandemic. Take advantage of Zoom or any kind of connection that you have. Fruits and vegetables are your best friends. They're going to shower us with vitamins, minerals, fiber, antioxidants. So the more, the merrier. We spoke about... Um, possibly thinking about probiotics. Omega-3 fats are vital, whether you can get it through food and or supplements. Getting the blood values taken, which we will follow up and let everybody know which bloods to specifically look for. If vitamin D levels are low, that's definitely something that you want to jump on. Um, and is there anything else I forgot? Folic acid, but that's going to be covered through your leafy greens and the fruits and the vegetables. Fiber, prebiotics, which feed the probiotics. Um, Megan, anything I forgot? I think you've done a great job summarizing. I would just weigh in there the final point um, being to take a food first approach that focuses on dietary diversity. Include uh, fruits and vegetables are fabulous, but a whole range of other plant-based foods like your legumes, your whole grains, including these as the foundations of your diet, um, including healthy fats such as olive oil. We didn't get a chance to touch on that, but up to three tablespoons per day is included as part of a Mediterranean diet um, and is an excellent source of monounsaturated fats along with nuts and seeds. And then including moderate amounts of lean red meat and um, dairy products as well and poultry to um, get those essential proteins and the other nutrients like your iron and B12. So focusing on, um, in short, a, a whole diverse diet approach. 
And I'll just comment and add, I think the main thing that I want to leave is to empower everyone to ask their patients and their clients about the relationship that they have with food and to, to really host an honest conversation in a safe, playful, you know, therapeutic way, whatever, whatever resonates with your personal list to you, you don't have to really learn anything new to be in nutritional psychiatry, but you've got to remember everything in a way that you have no idea. <laughs> so it's, it's really kind of an adventuresome and dynamic area of specialty. So please come hang out more. There's a lot more need. And uh, I just, it's great to be able to have a thoughtful way. Uh, well, that's all that we have time for today. April and Megan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. I know you gave us all a lot to think about. We are truly grateful for your time and contributions in this important area of uh, dietetics. And I love what April said, like, come join the party. Like, we need a lot of newcomers to this area. And you guys are both such inspirations and beautiful humans. Again, thanks for being with us. And Megan, good luck, congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank <laughs> you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> to get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.